If you will, take a copy of, your, of God's word and open up to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. When you survey the current evangelical landscape, if you look at churches, denominations, Christian groups, parachurch ministries, you find that there is an absence of God. If you look online, you listen to their sermons, you read their material that they produce on their websites, the publications that are sent out all over this planet. And what you find is that there is an absence of the God of the Bible, the God who is holy, the God who demands his people to be holy, who cannot be in the presence of sin, who created the world by his mere words, who has existed before time and the world began. Know what you find when you begin to survey this landscape, and it doesn't take you long that if you are faithfully walking with Christ to notice this, but what you find is that God has been repackaged. He's been reformatted into a nice and convenient way for people to be able to understand God based on their terms. What the church, what Christian organizations have resulted in is pragmatism. Humanistic ways to figure out how to do this thing called the Christian life. Or I'll say it another way, easy believism. You believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, and somehow we'll cross paths and everything will be okay because we're just seeking to believe in something that makes us feel good. Now, what we need in this country, what we need in the churches, what we need in denominations and theological seminaries and Christian groups is a revival of the God of the Bible. We need to have a God-centered worldview we need God for God churches. We need men and women who have a, a consuming passion to live for the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need. Those are the people that you want to follow. Those are the people that you want in your foxhole when the world begins to throw grenades at you left and right and being and insulting the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, what we are going to look at is we are going to look at one of the more famous passages in Scripture. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 14. I say it's more famous because some of you are aware that in this passage, there have been songs, there have been poems written about the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea. And I'm sure a lot of you, even as I'm talking about it, are recalling to mind the great movie by Charlton Heston. And no, I am not going to show you video clips of that this morning. I'm far better than Charles and Heston. That was a joke. <clears throat> Listen, there's one thing about myself that you'll get to know. Uh, one, I love a good joke, appropriately, of course, and they land flat at Capitol, and, I'm, and the fact that you're laughing gives me great joy. And so, so anyway, but all seriousness, we are going to look at this famous passage in Scripture and to see how the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea. But here's what I want you to see this morning more than anything. I want you to see the God of the Bible. I want you to understand this is God who's in the center of this story, who is consumed for his glory to be known, and at the same time, he is delivering his people Israel. He is saving his people Israel from a lose-lose situation. My prayer for you this morning is that you are going to see and understand and to know God in a deeper way, and that your affections for Christ, as Jonathan Edwards says, will grow deeper in your heart. You have sweet affections, how Edward says. 
My prayer for you is your, your love for God will grow deeper and deeper and wider and wider. This morning, we are going to walk through three points, and I trust that you have a pen ready to journey along with me in this passage. But this morning, what we are going to see in Exodus 14 is, number one, that the glory of God must be known. That is what's at stake, first and most importantly. Secondly, we are going to see how God tells his people to be silent and that he alone saves. And the third thing we are going to see is that throughout all of this, at the end of this narrative, we find that it is the fear of the Lord that God demands for his people. So before we get started in Exodus chapter 14, let's ask the Lord to be with us, ask for his spirit to teach us, convict us of sin, encourage us in our walk with Christ, because we need him now in our time in his word. So if you will, bow your heads with me and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Eternal Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this Lord's Day, the day that you have set apart for your people to come and to worship. Father, we do ask for your Spirit's help and guidance as we walk through Exodus 14. Father, I pray that your name will be proclaimed. And Lord, I ask that you will increase and I will decrease. Father, allow your Spirit to convict us of sin. Father, allow your Spirit to encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And Lord, I pray that as we know your word will, because it would never return void, or we ask that your word would do a work in our hearts, transforming us, as Paul says, from one glory to another, transforming us more into the image of Christ. So we pray all these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Before we walk through Exodus 14, let's get a little background of where we are, because this is going to help us set the stage and understand this chapter in a better light. First of all, what we need to see is that if you go back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 15, you will see that God made a covenant with Abraham. And in that same covenant there in Genesis 15, he told Abraham that the people of Israel are going to be enslaved for 400 years. But in the same word, he also says in verse 13 and 14 that he is going to deliver the people of Israel and he's going to judge the nation to whom they serve. The second thing we need to understand is that if you move further into the book of Genesis, if you look towards the latter half in Genesis 47 through 50, you find Israel is, brought, is moving locations and going to Egypt. There's a famine in the land, and if you're familiar with the end of Genesis, you are familiar with the great man Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, as I like to say. And there, by God's sovereignty, he ordains the people of Israel to be rescued. But it is also there is where they start their 400-year journey of enslavement, because Joseph dies, the Pharaoh dies, and as you read in the beginning of Exodus, there's a new man in the land, a new Pharaoh. And that's where you find their 400-year journey come to an end by being introduced to a man named Moses, a former family member of Pharaoh. And there in Exodus chapter 3, if you know your Bible, you're familiar that that is there that God commissions him to be the deliverer of Israel. And from that point on, all the way to Exodus chapter 12, you see God's promise fulfilled. He's delivering his people and going back to the promised land. Take open your Bible, flip over one page maybe, and let's look at Genesis, excuse me, Exodus chapter 13. And I want you to look at starting in verse 17, because this is going to help us to prepare the battlefield. This is going to help us to understand 14. Look with me in Exodus 13, verse 17. 
When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up to the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth, and it camped at Ithium, and the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night." The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Let's unpack this a little bit to prepare us for 14. First, you see God takes Israel south, not north. Israel would have been the shortest route, as as the Lord says. But here in verse 17, God says, if you go north, there's going to be the Philistines. That's what he's referring to. So he says, don't go north because the people of Israel will see them and they will fear and want to turn back. The second thing we need to see, and this is very important, and I would encourage you to pay attention because what we're going to see is you will see this theme throughout the entire Exodus account, but also here in in chapter 14. Notice that God is not absent from his people. He's very much present. Look with me in verse 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. The Lord is with them. You see there the Lord, he has written all caps, which means Yahweh is with them. What we see there in this account is is God is leading and protecting his people. But what we also see is that God did not send a cloud and fire. No, this is the visible manifestation of the presence of God with Israel. It's a theophany. And what we see here is that the people could see with their own eyes, Yahweh is leading them and guiding them every single step of the way. And I don't want you to forget that point. He is leading, he's protecting, and he's shepherding his people. So this gives us background as now we jump into Exodus chapter 14. This gives us a little bit of understanding and and be able to grasp in our hearts what's getting to happen as we walk through chapter 14. So if you will, take your pen and let's look at our first point together. And our first point is in verses 1 through 4, the glory of the Lord must be known. The glory of the Lord must be known. What we find here in these first four verses is the Lord said to Moses there in chapter, chapter 14, verse 1, tell the people of Israel to turn back and a camp at Phi-Hararoth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephron, and you will camp and facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. Look what the Lord says, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. In these first four verses, it's an interesting point that you catch right off the bat. First, you see Moses, God telling Moses to lead the people to the back door of Egypt, like the backyard. Think about it that way, as they are camping there by the Red Sea. But though this path in humanistic terms doesn't make sense, it very much makes sense to the Lord, because this is according to his sovereign 
plan. If you remember back in chapter 13, verse 17, remember, Israel was not prepared for battle. So if they go north, they're going to see the Philistines and run, like I said just a moment ago. But though this is the long way home, I want you to see this point. God takes them down a route that is best for them, not what is easiest. Let me write that down. God takes them down a path that is best for them, not what is easiest. And you see this all the time with the Lord. This is not the first time we see this in Scripture, that God is always going to take his people down a path that it's best, not what is easiest. But this is according to the will of God. Remember Joseph, the story of Joseph. If you go back into Genesis, remember his whole life gets turned upside down. But remember at the end of his life, in Genesis chapter 50, he says to his brothers, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Why? So that these people should be kept alive today. You look at the story of Joshua and Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. It doesn't make sense for them to go around the walls of Jericho over and over and over again. But you know what's in front of the army leading the way? The Ark of the Covenant. God has a purpose and a plan for it. And you see that God's sovereign hand as it work is guiding Israel all along the way. And don't forget the sovereignty of God is right in the midst of this story. And the sovereignty of God can be a very hard thing for us to understand. But when you look at it, when the purpose is for God's glory to be made known, it all comes together and makes sense. Because there is no accidents in the economy of God. From the breath of our lungs to the things that we see in the news every single day, the Lord is not absent from them. He's ordained them to happen. Never forget Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Remember the, Lord, the words from our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10 when he tells his disciples, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, not, yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your heavenly Father? A.W. Pink the great writer in his book, The Sovereignty of God, which helps us to see what God is doing here as he's leading Israel to the Red Sea. Listen to what he says in his book. Nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purposed. It's not blind fate. It's not unbridled evil, man or the devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. This path is not an accident. Being camped at the heart of the Red Sea is not taking God by surprise. No, this is according to the sovereign will of God. Notice the second thing that takes place with Israel. There's a man named Pharaoh. Pharaoh here is not, he hasn't forgot about Israel. And the route here may portray confusion in which you are Pharaoh. You're thinking, okay, over 1 million people are leaving but now they are, instead of going north, they go south, and they're right in my backyard, which if you're Pharaoh, you're probably thinking they're ripe for the picking. There in the, the an infamous Egyptian army can go right after Israel. But what happens? What does it say here that God says? Pharaoh is going to be a tool for the glory of God to be shown. For the Egyptians are going to know that I am the Lord. Moses in Exodus chapter 9, says this right to Moses' face. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, quotes this verse and is saying that God is sovereign over evil. And he, he will use whoever, 
including Pharaoh, for his glory and his saving power to be made known. Pharaoh and his army are going to be an outlet for the message of God to be seen and proclaimed throughout the whole world. It's just like, for example, if you hear maybe like a a heavy story or a sad story, and you begin to think, man, that's, that's heavy. That's a heavy story. And there's always, when you hear a story like that, there's some sort of heartfelt response. It makes an impact on your life. That's exactly what we see here. God crushing Egypt and Pharaoh is going to be like a ripple effect for the world to see the glory of God displayed, for the salvation of the Lord to be known. The psalmist even writes about this, just shows us the purpose of what's going to happen. He says in Psalm 107, verses 7 and 8, he says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember your abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he, Yahweh, saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Ladies and gentlemen, we we need to see, most importantly, the glory of God is always at stake. It's always at stake. And if you are a Christian, you need to understand this truth. Because if you are a Christian, you are commanded, like Paul says, that whatever you eat or you drink, whatever you do should be for the glory of God. If you are saved, if you have been delivered, then you represent the Lord Jesus Christ. The question to ask yourself is, are you conscious of this truth? That your words and your deeds matter because they reflect your maker. Think about that. It's a hard truth to think, to be able to comprehend. Because, listen, if you claim to be a Christian and someone says your name, do they immediately think that you are a faithful follower of God? Your reputation matters. It's very much like Boaz. When you look in Ruth chapter 2, the first thing we see of Boaz is he is a worthy man. And his reputation precedes himself because he is a faithful Israelite. The question to ask again, can that be said of you? I can think of saints of old, even when I was a young man, to be able to think of men in my life that I can see growing up. That when I think of their name, I think of faithfulness. I think of grace. I think of mercy. Again, can the same thing be said of you? The second point of application we need to see is this, is the glory of God will always be his top priority. Why? Because it displays his infinite beauty and his character. Because God is a jealous God. He is holy. And he's not going to split his glory for a fallen man like Pharaoh or for, for people, or fallen people or for false gods. He's a jealous God. And he's going to get glory over these people to whom they have been an enemy. Had they put... Israel and enslaved Israel for 400 years. But here's a third point, ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand is that though the path of life, though this path that God takes Israel on might not make sense to you, may be confusing, may be hard, but never forget that God is sovereign and he is working everything according to the counsel of his will and for your good. I know when you're in the midst of suffering, That can be hard to understand because you just want to back out. You want to pull the grenade and get out of there as fast as you can. Well, a lot of times, if we're really honest, we want to go north. We want to take the easy route. But never forget that God is working all things, all things, for the glory of his great name and for your good. The same thing that he is doing for Israel, which naturally leads us to our second point. Let's look at verses 5 through 14. Since the glory of God must be known, now the proper response, and our second point, is to be silent before God. 
for he alone saves. But the glory of God is to be known, and his glory is always going to show us that he alone saves. What we find is that especially since he is saving people, Egypt, excuse me, Israel from Egypt, the same thing can be said for us on this side of the cross. Since he has delivered us from sin and death, and we've seen his glory displayed through the cross. It's a proper response for us to be silent before him and to see that he alone, he alone is the only one who can deliver, deliver us from sin and death. Because look what's happening here in verse 5. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants has changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? That we've let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt and the officers, all of them. And the Lord hardened the fart of Pharaoh the king and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Look at verse 10. When, the people, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done with us to bring us out in Egypt? Is not what he said to you in Egypt, Let us leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." So what we see here in this, in verses 5 through 14, is that Pharaoh continues his path of sin. He does not turn God. The Lord hardens his heart. And there he takes his world-renowned army and he goes after. And therefore, in verse 9, we see Pharaoh and the boys roll up to Egypt, excuse me, to Israel. And they know that they are not prepared to fight. And look what happens in verse 10. Israel gets scared. It says they feared greatly. They cried out to Moses, even though they have been eyewitnesses of the 10 plagues, though they are firsthand uh, seeing that God is delivering them and taking them to the promised land, yet they get scared. You know, it's when you look at and you read medical journals, maybe you do on your part time. I like to read them every now and then. They're curious. But you know, whenever you read a medical journal, I was reading one recently about how the brain interprets information. And it, it's amazing when some, a stressful situation takes place, you've probably heard this before, that the fight or flight will kick in. That your brain is interpreting something and those hormones kick in. And what happens is the functions begave, begave, um, begin to work in us. And our body begins to say, either get out of there or fight. What we see here is that Israel wanted to flee. They were scared. But more importantly, what you don't see here is that they fled the Lord, the Lord God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten sixteen that these things happened as examples. The examples he's talking about is the unfaithfulness of Israel's disobedience. They didn't trust the Lord, so they, they, they wanted to flee. They were trying to flight, as the medical journal says. And, and ladies and gentlemen, that's a, a temptation that we as Christians face every day. We walk with Christ, and when an anxious situation hits us, what's our response? What about when suffering takes place? What about when Satan begins to throw his fiery darts and begins to take down or try to take down your faith? What about when we doubt the Lord? What happens in that moment? A good example for that is always when you turn to Jesus' teachings. And if you will, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. And let's look here 
and God's word to see the response in Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of the sower. Listen to what the Lord says. Look with me in Matthew 13. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away and what has been sown in his heart. And this is what was sown among the path. As for what is sown in rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one to whom he hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke out the word and are proves unfruitful. But as for the sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And he indeed bears fruit and yields, and in one case, a hundredfold, and another 60, and another 30. You can turn back to Exodus 14. What fruit do you bear when you feel like you're in a no-win situation? When you feel like your back is up against the wall or just in speaking here, up against the Red Sea? When anxiety, anxiety strikes, do you seek first the kingdom of God? Or do you allow your anxiety to put you in that cone of isolation? And there you're like a, like a bullet being shot in a steel drum, just pinging around with your own anxious thoughts, wondering where is the Lord and what am I going to do? Again, it goes back to what I said, especially when suffering result, you know, arises. Do you try to go back to easy believism and pragmatism? Or do you trust the Lord? Because our response should be what takes place in verses 13 and 14. Look with me what Moses says. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians in whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Look at the power of God. Look what Moses says to Israel. This is the exact opposite of what human intuition and flesh would tell us to do. Israel wants to flee, and God says, stand there and be silent. It's just like, I love the story. I love World War II history. And it's just like the story, if you know your, your World War II history, of Dwight Eisenhower, the great commander of the Allied forces. And if you know anything about the infamous Battle of D-Day, you know that in that story, in that, that historical account, that Eisenhower was receiving bad weather report after bad weather report over and over and over again. And there he had an 18 hour window to be able to strike and he did. But even though in one biography I was reading a long time ago said that they were telling the general, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Yet what we find is that Dwight Eisenhower went forward and June 6, 1944 is a day that I would say lives in our hearts forever because it turned the tide of the war. And that's what exactly what Israel has to do. Despite the situation that they are in, the Lord tells them to fear not, stand firm, and watch me work. It's a humbling rebuke from Moses. Because when you look in verses 13 and 14, if you were able to study the Hebrew, it is actually a negative imperative. One Hebrew scholar says this is the expressing in the strongest possible form a neg neg negation in the Hebrew language. It's a rebuke. It's a rebuke that Moses is giving Israel. It's just very much like a, a father to a child in a situation. 
it's just like growing up, uh, to get to know me a little bit better, I grew up in New Bern, which is about two hours east from here. And growing up, you could burn, you know, yard debris in your backyard. And so my parents were working. I know that's a foreign thing here in Raleigh. But yes, you can burn yard debris in, in people's backyards back in the day. But nonetheless, I remember one time my parents were working in the yard and my parents had a bonfire. And I can remember this, that my dad was burning leaves and told me to stand in my post and just watch it, make sure it doesn't get out of control. But as a little boy, I thought that this one situation, that the fire was getting hot, so I ran to my mom and told her that the fire was getting out of control. But what I didn't realize is that my dad was in the backyard the whole time watching everything take shape. My dad was in control the whole time. I had no reason to fear, no reason to chase after my mom. I just had to trust that even though I was in charge of the fire, my dad was ultimately in charge. And here's the situation we find Israel in. Because here's the other thing. God not only says to stand firm and to watch me work, but the other thing he tells them to do is to be silent. What a humbling rebuke. It doesn't matter if you're a kid or an adult. If someone tells you to be quiet, it's pretty humiliating, isn't it? I don't care who you are. If you think about it, especially as an adult, and someone tells you to just be quiet and sit there, it's very humbling. But what Moses is telling Israel is your silence, it's not just you sitting there, but your silence is yielding and watching the Lord work and watching his sovereign hand just orchestrate everything to deliver them from this situation. Their silence shows that they are not in control, but the Lord is, and he is going to save them, which shows us a couple of points in application in this text. Here's what we need to see. God is taking responsibility over this entire matter. God is taking responsibility over this entire matter. When he tells them to fear not and to stand firm and watch salvation unfold before your eyes, what it shows, and it's, it's very humbling for the Christian, shows us we can't save ourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, this is also a picture of the gospel. We can't save ourselves. It's a picture of the cross. If you understand good reformed doctrine, you will understand the idea of total depravity. And do you realize that in that doctrine alone, it shows that we never wanted to pursue God. We wanted nothing to do with God. It took the Lord pursuing us, transforming our heart, regenerating our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit and giving us the faith to believe. It's not our own effort. It's the Lord. Only God can save. And that's exactly what we see here in our second point. God is the only one who is opening up the path of salvation here. Here's the other point you need to see. Over 13 times in Scripture alone, we see the command to stand firm, stand firm. And ladies and gentlemen, you have to stand firm if you're walking in this fallen world. Because you are going to feel the effects almost on a daily basis of feeling the effects of sin. It doesn't take you long, like I said in my introduction, to see how the world does not want us to, to have victory here in the Christian life. You see Christians all the time being persecuted for their faith. But what we have to do is to stand firm. And standing firm a lot of times is not necessarily a bodily action. It's not standing at attention, if you think about in the military. Standing firm is standing true in the conviction and the truth of who God is, the God of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, not in your own effort, but in the faith. Act like men, be strong. Paul in his great manifesto in the book of Galatians, chapter 5 says, 
for freedom for Christ to set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Standing firm is trusting the truth of who God is. And it's the knowledge that you can't do anything that only God can save. How do you stand firm? It's by getting into the book. It's by allowing the power of God's word to be able to transform your heart. Because you know that when the waves come and you start begin to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's amazing that when all worldly wisdom is stripped away from you, what lasts is the truth of who God is, that he alone saves, that he is a God of mercy and grace and steadfast love, who forgives iniquity and who's all glorious and all powerful. It's amazing when you are suffering, what begins to last when you're in that moment by yourself or maybe when you have a lot of windshield time and you're going through hardship. It's amazing how the spirit begins to bring verses over and over and over again in the forefront of your mind. Songs, hymns that you just sang just a few moments ago begin to sing in your mind. It's almost out of random. There to remind you the truth of who God is. That allows you to be able to put on the whole armor of God and stand in the midst of the gap, like Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 32. When the world begins to crash down, there you're able to stand in the midst of the gap, and there you're able to say that you've got to go through me. You've got to go through me when the world is crashing down, which leads to our third and final point. So we've seen the glory of the Lord must be known. And when his character and his nature is displayed, that is when his glory is being shown. The second thing we see here, like I just said, is that we see that he alone can save. And we are just blown away by his salvation for us and his grace towards us. Then we see that the fear of the Lord is what God desires for man. Look with me at the end of this chapter in verses 15 through 31. Look with me in verses 15 and 18. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. Let the people of Israel go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh. Sound familiar? You just said it just in previous verses. And all of his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots. So you look here in the first point in verse 15 and 18, God tells Moses to move forward. Go into the heart of the sea when everything seems lost. Could you imagine someone telling you that? The way of salvation is going to go through a big body of water. You have to get going. Though you're scared, God says, go. And how does he say to do it? Moses is going to split the sea in half. What a crazy idea. Really. Just, just, it's, every time I read that, it's just, it's just dumbfounding to me. That's the path that God says go forward. I was reading some scientific journals, again, journals again, of geologists and meteorologists trying to explain this phenomenon. And what was fascinating in every single one of these articles is that they cannot explain what was taking place. Of course you can't. It's an act of God. Remember when Jesus was in the boat in, in Mark chapter 4 and Matthew 8, when he said to the seas, be silent, be still. And even the disciples said, even the seas and the winds obey him. He's Lord over creation. He put creation into existence. 
Of course he can do this, split it right in half. And then look with me in verse 18. Here's a repeated theme again. He's going to get glory over Pharaoh. God's plans have not changed. This is not like a football or basketball game where you're sitting on the edge of your seat wondering what's going to happen to Pharaoh. Remember, you've got to go back to the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. He is going to crush Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. Remember, this is the decretive will of God. This is God's going to bring whatever he pleases according to his eternal decree. Nothing is going to stop this plan. Here's the second thing we need to see. If you look in verses 19 through 25, then the angel of God was going before them. The host of Israel moved, went behind them, there in 19, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near and one coming on all night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by the strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. It's amazing what happens. God's presence is with them. He moves out in front and behind, and a light portrays for them to be able to move forward. And ladies and gentlemen, this would be, this would be far greater than any 4th of July fireworks show that you've ever seen before. And here in verse 22, Israel goes right through the heart of the Red Sea on dry land, on dry land. And then what do we see? Pharaoh, verse 23, the Egyptians pursued them, went right in after them. Egypt has still has not learned their lesson and goes right into the heart of the sea. And there God is at work, ordaining all these things to take place for his glory to be made known. And there the, their wheels get bogged down in the mud. And there at the moment they realize that they are defeated. And why? Remember what God said. The Lord fights for them. The Lord fights for them. There's the ripple effect of the glory of the Lord being made known. They realize they have lost. And here in verses 26 to 29, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had fallen them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea the waters being walled to them on their right hand and on their left. Those are very humbling passages. Could you imagine seeing that? Right before your eyes, hundreds of men on chariots coming after you, and then all of a sudden, they disappear. The waters go right on top of them. Egypt is crushed. Israel is saved. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 51 verse 10 says, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road into the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Even Isaiah knew this. He knew God was going to save his people. Yahweh has delivered their, his people from their enemy. And what a picture of God's promise. He didn't leave them there on the edge of the sea. He didn't take them north. God saved his people. He is the one that orchestrated the plan of salvation. That's why even when you look on this side of the cross, I love when you look at Romans 1, the same thing can be said. 
that God is the one who is the author and the initiator of our faith. Because you look at Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, what does Paul call the gospel? It is the power of the gospel of God. It is God is the one who creates and does this plan to send his son Jesus to come and to be born of a woman, to live a sinless life, who lived a perfect life and there died on the cross for our sins, to saving us from the wrath of God, God's hot indignation upon sin there that we reread in Romans 1 and Romans 2. And there rose again on the third day and who is alive and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We can't create that story. We can't create that path. Only the Lord can. And here, even with Israel, when Moses raises his staff, it's even mentioned four times. It's, it's just showing that the staff or Moses doesn't have any power. It's God, the creator at work. And there it is in verse 31. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant, Moses. There it is for the people of Israel to fear the Lord, to believe in the Lord, to trust in the Lord. The whole account brings us to this picture that what God wants for his people, to fear him so they can fear and to worship him, walk in obedience to him. Philip Reichen comments on verse 31 correctly. I think he says it best here as he summarizes this. He says, God was fulfilling the grand purpose of his saving a people for his glory. For that to happen, his people had to trust him and to worship him. Notice the order here, Riken says. God did not wait for his people to trust in him before he would save them. If he waited for that to happen, they never would have been saved. Instead, God took the initiative. First, the people saw their salvation just as Moses had promised them there in chapter 14, verse 13. And then they feared and believed. This is the pattern, the purpose of salvation. First, God delivers us from danger, saving us when we cannot save ourselves. Then we respond in faith, trusting in God and worshiping him. That's the pattern we see over and over and over again. And here's the pattern we see in Exodus 14. Because it's just as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 130 verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The fear of the Lord is the proper response to God. The fear of the Lord is the, is the recognition of God's character and his nature. And the fear of the Lord is, the, is only, by the way, is for those who have been regenerated by the power of the gospel of God. The fear of the Lord is driven by seeing God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Again, knowing what we have been delivered from. And so in turn, we become a holy people. We seek to be a holy people, a meek people, a humble, a humble people, a people who are poor in spirit, but a confident people in Christ alone. That's the whole package for the people of God to know and to fear him. Write this verse down if you're taking notes. It's one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, but it encapsulates what God is doing here. It's Isaiah chapter eight, verses 11 to 13. These are verses I say to myself on a daily basis. For the Lord spoke to me thus with a strong hand upon me, warning me not to walk in the way of his people and saying, do not call conspiracy all that his people call conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Fear the Lord for his perfect 
and pure and clean and right response for his people. So in closing, the crossing of the Red Sea is a story of God, the God of the Bible, the God who shows us his majestic power, his mercy, his grace, but also his judgment. But his glory is also seen most importantly. There is no doubt in this account that we see, just like we see in the entire book of Exodus, it is all about Yahweh. We see that he is concerned about his glory, that he is a jealous God, and that his glory he would not give to another. And we see that when his glory is displayed, we see that he alone is the redeemer and savior. And through that, our proper response as believers, as Christians, is to fear him. It is no accident that the New Testament describes Jesus' work on the cross as the Exodus. Remember his parents, Jesus' parents fled to Egypt, showing a picture of escape of Israel out of Egypt. Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, talking about his crucifixion as an exodus, he says departure. And there in the Greek, it means exodus. Jesus is the new and the better Moses, as Hebrews chapter 3 says and Deuteronomy 18, verse 13 says. The passing of the Red Sea that Israel goes through is a picture that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of making the connection of baptism. It's all right here in the book of Exodus. And the whole account helps us to see the God of the Bible. The God who saves. The God who sent forth his son Jesus to save us from our sin. To save us from our enemy Egypt. As you can see in the light of Exodus 14. To deliver us not through our own work, but to sit there and to be silent. And to see the plan of salvation given to us all by his grace. One of my favorite hymns that I'm sure you sing here at Christ Baptist is Guide Me, O Thy Great Jehovah. And there's one stanza, and I'll close with a song. It says this, When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises. I will ever sing to you. I will ever sing to you. May God alone be glorified, for he is the one who saves us from, our, from sin and death, and he is the one who is to be praised and honored. Let's pray. Eternal Lord and Heavenly Father, we see clearly in Scripture that Scripture points over and over and over again, shows us who God is, we see here in Exodus 14 that you are the God who is consumed and jealous for his glory. That you are the God who has existed before time began. And Lord, you, through your sovereignty, knew this was going to happen in Exodus 14. And yet, in your grace and mercy, extended to us, extended to Egypt, a picture of salvation. So, Father, I pray today that our hearts will see more of who you are, the God of the Bible, who is holy and just and perfect. Father, I pray that if someone in this place doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, they will see through Exodus 14 
that you alone save. So Father, I pray, stir within us deeper affections for Christ. We pray all these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen.